Well, um, here we are. Today we begin our Christmas sermon series. And before we get past the first sentence, there is uh, something I need to clarify. Not for you all. You all know this. But for the sake of anyone listening online, um, I need to make one thing crystal clear. I am not preaching on Christmas carols. Uh, I am preaching on God's word, which is the only thing I've ever preached on, the only thing I intend ever to preach on. With that said, uh, it appealed to me this year as I considered what to do in December. Um, I could have just kept preaching through First Thessalonians, but I decided not to, um, maybe against my better judgment. We'll see. Um, but what I decided to do uh, was consider some Christmas carols, because you cannot deny that we have been gifted some incredibly theologically rich hymns which is just what a carol is, so I'll use him and carol uh, interchangeably thus far. But we have such a, 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 a deep uh, theological richness uh, and, and such a great treasure of biblical truth in such carols that what I thought I would do is I would use some of these uh, Christmas carols as a jumping-off point for three sermons. In other words, what I plan to do is we will consider a Christmas carol and a particular focus of that carol, and then we will look to the Word of God to see what the Word of God says about that topic. So, while a church's regular diet of preaching should be expositional, something you all know, uh, it is appropriate every now and then to take a short break for some topical preaching, which is what we will do uh, this week and the next two weeks. So, next week, uh, we're going to consider uh, the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing which is not really its original title, but I'll leave that for you to wait for next week. And what we will do is we'll talk about the topic of reconciliation. And then the week after that, uh, we will look at joy to the world. And of course, we will think about celebration. But for today, we will think briefly about the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And the topic that we will begin with today is the topic that you would all expect to be the topic we begin our Christmas sermon series on, the Incarnation. So we'll talk about the incarnation today, we'll talk about reconciliation next week, and we'll talk about celebration the week after. Now the history of this particular carol I have chosen for this ser- first sermon in the series is very interesting indeed. It, in fact, this may be one of the oldest Christmas carols that we know. Uh, it dates back to at least as early as the 9th century, and maybe even further back. It began actually as a series of chants chants in, uh, in Latin, which were incorporated into the observation of Advent. Now, Advent is another interesting subject. Uh, as far as the origin of Advent, um, we can find it as early as the 4th century. Now, as for, as for what Advent is, I think most of us know it's a, a countdown of sorts to Christmas Day, to the day we celebrate the incarnation, uh, the birth of Christ. So when it comes to this hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it finds its origin in seven chants which were used to count down to the birth of Christ, each which began with a reference to Jesus found in the Holy Scriptures. These are the titles, and forgive me, I'm not, uh, I don't know Latin that well, but it's uh, Sapientia, Wisdom. Adonai, which I'm sure some of you know means Lord. Radix Jesse, which means Root of Jesse. Clavis David, Key of David. Uh, Oriens, which uh, means Day Spring. Rex Gentium, which means King of Nations. And Emmanuel, which of course means God with us. Now, 
there is some debate as to uh, when these were turned into what we know as this beloved hymn. Uh, we know it, it found its origin in this, but we don't know uh, for sure when it came to be what we have today. But according to Albert Bailey, in his book, The Gospel and Hymns, it was sometime between the 12th century and the 18th century. Uh, he says it was sometime between the 12th and 18th century that someone took these seven separate sentences, threw away two, changed the order of the remaining ones, wove them into a hymn, and added a refrain. Sometime between the 12th and 18th century, uh, and then, and then uh, the, this Latin hymn um, was taken by John Neal, a 19th century Church of England minister, and translated into what we sing uh, today. Now, there are a number of variations and a number of different verses, but regardless of the controversy concerning how far back this hymn goes, uh, and regardless of the variations or different verses that are sometimes uh, included, uh, this hymn is all about the incarnation, uh, of course, which is to say it's about when God took on flesh and dwelt among us. The first stanza says, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And then they refrain, rejoice, rejoice. So we are going to think about the incarnation today. And we're going to do it in three ways um, with a look at three texts. And I just have to tell you, um, you know, I, I really do believe in expositional teaching because uh, it's, I think, what is, is the best. But man, topical preaching is so much easier it's so much easier. There's so, I mean, you just pick a topic. There's so much to say. The, the incarnation is all throughout scripture. And man, it's, you know, so, so I mean, in one sense, I am, I, I, I do appreciate doing a Christmas series because it's just easier. Anyway, this is what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to talk about the incarnation prophesied. We're going to talk about the incarnation realized. And we're going to talk about the incarnation applied. So prophesied, realized, and applied. And uh, we're going to begin in the Old Testament because we're talking about uh, the incarnation prophesied. And, uh, and what I want to do, actually, we're going to focus in on that last title in the chants, Emmanuel. Uh, but I want to look at a few of the other titles for Jesus in the chants, and especially the ones that are from the Old Testament. So there's three of the names uh, from those chants that are in the New Testament, actually. Key of David, Dayspring, and, of course, Adonai, or Lord. And there's three from the old. And so let's just quickly look at the three from the old. The first is sapientia or wisdom. That is a title for Jesus. We know this when we look at Proverbs 8. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified. And when we get to verses 22 through 29, it becomes very clear that wisdom is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 1.24, Paul, in fact, confirms that by calling Jesus the wisdom of God. So the first is sapientia, wisdom incarnate. When we think of Christ and his birth, we think of wisdom incarnate, wisdom in flesh. That's what incarnate means, in, in flesh. In flesh, becoming flesh. The second name for Jesus in these chants is radix, not radish, radix Jesse, uh, root of Jesse, which is found in Isaiah's prophecy. And in particular, when you look at Isaiah chapter 11, we read in verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So, I mean, what is a shoot? A shoot is something that comes from a root, right? It, it, it comes up. Um, now, that's not the, the title. The title is Root of Jesse. Now, the shoot of Jesse uh, surely refers first to David, doesn't it? 
right? Uh, uh, David was his son, uh, and so the, the shoot of Jesse is David. But later on, just in fact, nine verses later, it becomes very clear that this shoot is, is not just a reference to David because now the shoot is referred to as a root. And so in Isaiah 11, verse 10, the, root, uh, the shoot of the shoot, it is now said, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, as one of my favorite commentators on Isaiah says about this, he says one of the most striking features of this remarkable passage is the dual title of the coming king as both the shoot and the root of Jesse. The reference to Jesse indicates that the shoot is not just another king in David's line, but rather it is another David. When Jesse produces a shoot, it must be David. But to call the expected king the root of Jesse is altogether another matter, for this means that Jesse sprang from him. He is the root support and origin of the messianic family in which he would be born. So in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah is in fact preparing us to identify the Messiah incarnate as one who came from the line of Jesse, which is to say a man, the son of man, but also one from whom Jesse comes, which is to say he must have come before Jesse and thus is in fact also the son of God. So, uh, once again, Paul confirms for us in Romans 15, 12, I won't go there, but you can jot that down, that the one prophesied in the Old Testament is Jesus. Jesus is the root of Jesse incarnate. Now, there's just one last uh, Old Testament name for Jesus from the charts, or from the chants, sorry, uh, from which the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, came from, and that is Rex Gentium, which is translated King of Nations. Now, uh, man, this would have been a fun one, too. I would have liked to have just preached on, uh, on uh, this prophecy from Jeremiah. But this is found in Jeremiah, uh, where the prophet is telling us that Yahweh, as king of the nations, is worthy to be feared and worshipped by all nations. There is no uh, nation, no human being, uh, who does not owe all worship to uh, the king of nations, to Yahweh. Now, in the Song of the Lamb, which is found in uh, Revelation, the Revelation of John in chapter 15, we learn that Jeremiah was pointing us forward ultimately to the birth of Christ because it's there where we see the king of nations incarnate, the one whom all nations will confess as Lord to the glory of the Father. So, so there's three of the names from the Old Testament, uh, from Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, and Proverbs, which is prophesying, in particular, the incarnation, which just leaves us with one last title. This is the one we're going to Uh, get into. Uh, This is the title we'll spend most of our time on, uh, and this requires that we look at Isaiah. So please turn to Isaiah chapter 17. Sorry, Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7. Now, uh, as you're turning there, let me give you some context. I didn't give you any context for the first three, uh, but you're going to get some for this one. It's actually very necessary and will be very hopeful, I hope. Um, So the context of the verse we're going to look at, in particular in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, it basically starts where we left off in 1 Samuel, with David becoming king. So uh, David becomes king after Saul, of course. You remember Saul was Israel's choice for a king. They wanted a king like the nations. And, uh, and then uh, along comes David. Uh, he was God's choice because he was a man after God's own heart. Now, David is no perfect king. And if you get a chance before... Uh, Wednesday, I hope you will try to get through First Samuel, or sorry, Second Samuel. Listen, this week I'm pre- I'm teaching on First and Second Samuel. You don't have to read First Samuel. We just did that, but if you can read through Second Samuel, uh, you will surely see that David was no perfect king, uh, but he was the best. 
He, he was the best of Israel's king. He was known as the best. Uh, but after David then came King Solomon. And after Solomon came King Rehoboam, uh, a king who did not have an especially good start to his reign. Uh, and a good majority of the people decided they were not going to follow Rehoboam. Uh, instead, they would follow Jeroboam. So you've got Rehoboam, who is uh, ruling over five-sixths of the kingdom, and they are henceforth forth re- referred to as Israel. Uh, and then you've got Rehoboam reigning over one-sixth of the kingdom, uh, henceforth referred to as Judah. Rehoboam is the one who sits on the Davidic throne. Now, a number of kings of Judah uh, and Israel pass by and, 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 uh, uh, since the kingdom divides. And now, in Isaiah chapter 7, Ahaz is sitting on the throne of David. He is the king of Judah, and Pekah is reigning in Israel. Now, King Pekah and Israel have thus united with Syria uh, against the world powerhouse of that day, which was Assyria. And if you're not a big one on names, things can get confusing, right? Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Syria, Assyria, who are we talking about here? Anyway, you've got King Pekah and Israel. They've united with Syria against Assyria. And they want Judah to join their alliance. But, but Ahaz will not have it. And so uh, what they do is they plan an, a, an attack on Judah, uh, and they intend to uh, overthrow Ahaz and then install a puppet king there who will, of course, do what they want to do, which is unite together with Syria to attack Assyria. So... The context of the verse we're going to look at is a situation in which Ahaz and the people of Judah are very afraid, and the king has an important decision to make, we learn in Isaiah 7, verse 2. And so the question that we enter Isaiah 7 with is, will Ahaz stand strong? Will he trust in God, or will he trust in himself and look to men for salvation? This is the setting into which Isaiah steps. And he delivers these words to Ahaz. And let me just summarize verses 3 through 11. So the first thing he says in verses 3 through 8 is that God is still in control and God is faithful to fulfill his promises. This is the first thing Isaiah says to Ahaz. Remember, the question is, will Ahaz trust in God? And, and, and basically, uh, in verses 3 through 8, Isaiah says, God is trustworthy, Ahaz. And then in verse 9, uh, he tells him that not trusting in God is a, is, is a exercise in futility. He says the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Rehoboam. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Not trusting in God is an exercise in futility, he says. Then in verses 10 and 11, we learn that God instructs Ahaz to seek a sign from him. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of Yahweh your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Whatever the question is, ask a sign of God, God tells Ahaz to do. Now, what we learn is that Ahaz will not trust God. He, he, he instead says, no, 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 I would never test God. I'm much too righteous and too faithful for that. I would never do that. The problem is, is that God tells him to do it. God says to him, ask for a sign. So this is not righteousness. This is disobedience. It's a lack of trust in in God. So Ahaz and all of Israel along with him will not trust in God. 
Verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So Ahaz leads Israel, the people of God, into disobedience. But yet again, God demonstrates his grace in the face of human sin and disobedience. Because even though Ahaz will not ask for a sign, God says, don't you worry now, I'm going to give you a sign. And this is the sign. Isaiah 7, verse 14, look with it at me. Well, look, look, with, look at it with me. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I mean, it would most certainly be a miracle for a virgin to give birth, right? That, that generally, typically, literally never happens, right? That doesn't happen. Um, but what is most significant uh, in this wonderful prophecy is, is something else. I'm, I'm not, I've talked about, uh, you know, the virgin birth and all of that. I, I'm not going to talk about that this morning. Uh, I, I want to focus on something that is that is more miraculous than a virgin giving birth. And it is that the one born to the virgin was to be called Emmanuel, which is to say God with us. For Ahaz, this prophecy was a reminder that God's presence with God's people is not optional. God's presence with God's people is not optional. It is absolutely necessary. It is also a reminder that God will not be ignored by his people. It was also, also a reminder that they were to do what Israel was supposed to do since the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what that was? They were to wait for the Messiah. Since Genesis 3.15, they were to be waiting for the Messiah. God's people were to be waiting for the Messiah, the one who would ransom captive Israel, the one who would disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. And this is how he would do it. He would crush the serpent, which is to say he would crush Satan. He would destroy Satan. And he would set his people free from the curse by becoming a curse for his people. This is the one that Israel was to be waiting for. And at the time of Isaiah's prophecy, they learned that the Messiah was, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. And so they were to live with faith in God, believing the promise that Emmanuel would come, that the Son of God would appear. In short, they were to be trusting in the Messiah to come. And when he did come, it would be an occasion for rejoicing. Rejoice, rejoice. So as we read about Jesus in the Old Testament, and more particularly as we look at passages about the incarnation prophesied, we discover that Christmas time is to be a time of rejoicing for God's people. It's at Christmas time, of course, that we celebrate the incarnation, something which was prophesied many times in the Old Testament. We only looked at a few occasions this morning, but you know, you know what's coming. If I do a Christmas sermon series, you know that this reminder is coming. And is that Christmas must not be the only time of the year that we celebrate the incarnation. I mean, we can put a tree up for one month of the year, and we could put lights on our house for one month of the year. 
We can have a, a turkey dinner one day a year. We can have a Christmas Eve service one day a year. But we can't just remember the incarnation for one month or one day of the year. The incarnation must be something that we remember and celebrate all year long because it is in the incarnation that God condescended to man. Let that sink in for a minute. God condescended to man. God became man. It is in the incarnation that we see God with us. And it was God with us to save us and give us eternal life. And that is most certainly a reason for rejoicing. We rejoice in the gifts that God has given us through Christ. But ultimately, we rejoice in Christ. The gifts we receive from Christ are are most certainly something to be celebrated. But we get Christ. We come to Christ, and we have Christ as our Savior and our Lord. And and that is something to rejoice, because, you know, in this world in which we live, there is a lot of things that can steal your joy. But there is one thing that will help restore it, and that is meditating on the Incarnation, by meditating on the Incarnation prophesied. As we look to the prophecies of the Old Testament, we are reminded that God's presence with his people is not optional but absolutely necessary. You need God's presence with you always and forever. And we are reminded that in the birth of Jesus, we see God with us. And because of the incarnation, we have God with us always through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So Christmas time is a wonderful time to spend time reading the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, Luke 2 is great. We'll look there next week. You know, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1 in a little while. But man, Spend some time reading the prophecies about the birth of the Son, and it will be sure uh, to encourage you and grant you joy. So uh, think about the incarnation prophesied. Now we will turn to Matthew chapter 1, as I said. So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 if you have your Bibles with you. Now, uh, for Israel... They were waiting for the Messiah, so they were looking forward to the Messiah. Sadly, they didn't have this hymn. This hymn wasn't written, as I said, until maybe sometime between the 12th and 18th century. Uh, but really, it's, it's Israel who we are singing along with. O come, O come, Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel. So for Israel, they were looking forward to the, to the Messiah. Now, we, of course, look back to the first coming of the Messiah. They look forward to it. We look back to it. You see, we have the Old Testament, but we also are blessed to have the New Testament. And more particularly, we have the Gospels. And so, as one of my uh, uh, seminary professors always used to say, if you want to know about the Messiah, read the Old Testament. And if you want to know who the Messiah is, identified, read the New Testament. It's there where we find the incarnation realized. This is what we read in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not fear. Do not take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, we're going to have to stay on topic here. Remember, we're talking about the incarnation. So we now know how a virgin will conceive, right? By the power of the Holy Spirit. This shouldn't be, uh, you know, especially overwhelming to us. What's overwhelming and should be overwhelming to us is that God became flesh. But uh, a virgin giving birth, I mean, for the God who created all things and sustains all things, not really that big of a deal if you think about it, if you understand who who God is. So we know how a virgin will conceive by the power of God. Uh, And we know that the one born to the virgin would be a son. And if he is a born of a woman, then we know he is a, a man. And now we know what his name is. We have identified him. Matthew has identified him for us. His name is Jesus, a name which means God saves. So we, we know how God will be with us, right? Isaiah told us that, that, that we would see God with us. Now we know it through the birth of this son. But there's something else that Matthew wants his readers to know. Namely, he wants us to know that this is the Messiah who was prophesied by Isaiah. And so uh, Matthew... Uh, Uh, identifies him here, and he says in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew translates for us, which means God with us. So, you know, you spend all those times in in the prophets. You read all of those prophecies, and you think about the hundreds in hundreds and hundreds of years that they waited. They waited and they waited, you know, and they learned little bits and pieces, you know, where he's going to be born and, and how his birth is going to come about and all of these other little details, but they're just waiting. I mean, you think that last 10 seconds seemed like a long time. You're waiting for me to say something. You're thinking, did he lose his place? What's going on? Why is he? I was just, you think of waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Thousands of years. You still think that's a long time, don't you? So imagine they had waited all of these years. And now the wait is over. Now, Emmanuel had come. The birth of the Messiah had happened. The incarnation had been prophesied, but now it was realized. It was seen in Jesus, the Messiah, the God, the one who is God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. So we have considered the incarnation prophesied, and we have very quickly uh, considered the incarnation realized. We looked at how the Old Testament prepared us for the birth of the Lord Jesus, and then we looked to uh, the Gospels where we learn the, the identification of Jesus, the, the incarnate one realized. So there's just one last thing to do, um, and that is to think about the incarnation applied, and for that we will go to another Gospel, uh, John, John chapter 1, where we find, in fact, the shortest nativity of all of the Gospels. You probably have it memorized. It's in John chapter 1 and verse 14. 
And it's this. John chapter 1, verse 14. John's nativity story. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Nine words. But nine words which perfectly encapsulate what is so significant about the birth of Christ. No mention of angels with divine messages from above. That's for next week. No mention about Mary and Joseph and a manger. We'll talk about that next week also. And no mention of wise men following a star to, wor- uh, a star, sorry, to worship Jesus. And I'll have some words to say about that next week also. But John here instead chooses to simply narrow in on why Jesus' birth matters. Because if it weren't for this, guess what? It's just a birth like any other birth. But no, John wants us to know what is so significant about the birth of Jesus. And it is that he is the son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And to be sure we understand that, he then goes on to note that in the incarnation, he says in the second half of verse 14, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, it was in the, in the tabernacle, uh, the temple, uh, but first in the tabernacle, if you uh, remember, where the glory of God was seen by his people. Remember, God gave Moses instructions for putting the tabernacle together, and, and, and we worked our way all the way through all of those sometimes monotonous instructions. But then we get to the end, and we see this is very important that they uh, construct the tabernacle exactly as God has instructed, because in Exodus 40, verse 34, once it was finished, we read, the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. But now, now, no more tabernacle. Now, God tabernacles with men. He dwells with men. And as it says, he is full of grace, and truth. But but not only was he full of grace and truth, he actually brought grace and truth to dispense. He wasn't going to keep it to himself. As we read in John chapter 1 verse 16, we see for from him, or sorry, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He came full of grace and truth, but he came to dispense grace and truth. He took on flesh, he dwelt among us, and he did so because we were in desperate need of his grace. And Jesus brought us that grace. Now, I want to I just quickly say, uh, John here does not contrast law and grace uh, to imply that law is bad and grace is good, right? I could spend lots of time talking about that, but let me just say that's not what he's doing here. What he's doing is he is contrasting law with grace because we could never be made right in the sight of God by the law. But we can by grace. And that's the only way we can is by grace. We need God to save us from our sins. We cannot save ourselves. And he did that when Jesus took our sins upon himself and died the death that we deserved and received the wrath of God that we earned. We need God to give us eternal life which he did when Jesus rose from the grave victorious over death. And we need someone to intercede for us, which God did when Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand, where he intercedes for us even now. And this was all of grace. The crucifixion was of grace. The resurrection was of grace. And the ascension is because of grace. We don't do anything because we can't. 
We can't do anything. You can't do anything to save yourself. You can try all you like. It's a fool's errand. You can attend all the church services you, can, you like. You can, read all, uh, you can read the Bible as many times as you like. You can put as much money in the plate. Oh, that, we don't do that anymore. You can e-transfer as much money to the church. Okay, you know what I'm saying here. You know, you can be the, the best person, kinder and, and nobler than Ebenezer Scrooge at the end. And it won't do you any good whatsoever. None, no good whatsoever. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. The gospel, though, is not about what you can do. It's about what God has done through Christ. And what I want us to know this morning is that it all began with the incarnation, which was as much of grace as was the crucifixion and the resurrection. We did not deserve to see the glory of God in the incarnation. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve the grace of God, which we received through Christ's birth and his life and death and resurrection. And we do not deserve to have a Savior who is Emmanuel, God with us. We don't deserve that. That is all of grace because it is undeserved, which is what grace is. So the application of the incarnation is simple, really. In light of John's nativity here, there is only one right response to the fact that the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt amongst men. There is then only one thing to do in light of the incarnation. Come to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus as the only one who can save you from your sins and from death and receive the gracious gift of salvation and eternal life. Jesus is the one who saves and the only one who saves. So trust in him as both Savior and Lord because there is salvation in no other name. Then and only then, then and only then, like Israel, you can now look forward to the coming of Emmanuel. Not, not the first coming, he's already come, the second coming. But you must trust in Christ. And when you do, then you can look forward to the Messiah's return when he will raise the dead, judge the wicked, recreate the heavens and the earth, and reign over all his people as they rejoice in him for all of eternity. So when we think of the incarnation, when we think of Jesus' first coming, it should ultimately lead us to think of the second coming, something I'll say more of in a few weeks. It should lead us to think of the resurrection. The incarnation should lead us to think of the resurrection. And what a day that will be, right? You, you think you've seen celebrations here on earth. You ain't seen nothing yet. That is, that is almost in, inconceivable. But if thinking in the incarnation leads us to think on the resurrection, then thinking on the incarnation is a means of pursuing joy, right? Remember, the scriptures do command us to rejoice. And in case we didn't hear it the first time, Paul says, and I say again, rejoice. That is a command. That's something you have to do. And you say, yeah, but I don't feel the joy. You have to pursue the joy, right? The obedience comes first. The feelings will follow after, hopefully. But regardless of whether the feelings come, your job is to trust in Christ and obey him, pursue that joy. You know, joy can be hard to come by sometimes, especially at this time of the year. I know for some of you, you're thinking, what? That's crazy. I know for some of you, Christmas is the best time of the year with Christmas decorations and yummy Christmas dinners and with wonderful Christmas presents, right? But for some, uh, Christmas time can be a really tough time. Like for those in retail, 
that's real. I mean, I'm not kidding you. Travis was so excited this Christmas that he didn't have to worry about Red Thursday and Black Friday and all the other things. I mean, it, it really can get you down. It can be a tough time for those who have experienced tragedy at this time of year, right? Maybe, you know, like my dad, this is the first Christmas that you're dealing with the loss of a loved one. Or maybe some other difficult circumstance you're experiencing, and it's hard to find joy. Well, you know, if you're on one end and and Christmas just provides all kinds of joy, or you're on the other end where it's hard to find joy, or, you know, figure out where you are on the whole scale of things between one side and the other. When it concerns how you feel about this time of year, I have one exhortation for you all. Think about the incarnation. For those who find December a tough time, think about the incarnation. If you are bogged down by the commercialism of it all, think about the incarnation. If you are frustrated uh, over what is going on in our society, where it seems as though everybody wants to celebrate Christmas, but they don't want to call it Christmas, think about the Incarnation. We don't have to get all up in airs about that. If somebody says happy holidays to us, you know what we can do? We can say happy holidays right back. If you are missing a loved one at this time of year, or you're dealing with some other difficult circumstance... Think about the incarnation. Now, for those who who love this time of year, when you're decorating your house, think about the incarnation. And when you're giving and receiving gifts and wrapping gifts, oh, I'm not looking forward to that. But think about the incarnation. And when you're uh, laboring over your Christmas dinner, as, as I will be doing, and as you're sitting around the table enjoying your Christmas dinner with family, Think about the incarnation. Whatever festivities and traditions you enjoy so much in December, may they encourage you to think more about the incarnation and not less. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And that is what we celebrate, not just at December, but all year round. We consider the prophecies of the incarnation as we sing songs like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We read the Gospels where Emmanuel is revealed and Jesus as the incarnation is realized. Then finally, Finally, we think about how the incarnation is to be applied, which is by trusting in Christ and rejoicing in Christ.